And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are around this rotating globe, um, if you're in China and listening, uh, it's already tomorrow. Future's coming up really fast. We're going to be talking about you guys in China momentarily. Uh, welcome, one and all. It's an extraordinarily interesting news night. There is breaking news on several fronts, as well as um, our <clears throat> previously scheduled guest, who's going to be taking us way back in time to the construction and apparently the embedding of an extraordinary mathematical and geometric code in the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And later in the evening, we're going to bring on our Enterprise Mission Imaging team, those that uh, are not doing other things tonight, and we're going to discuss the connections we've now demonstrated, discovered, astonishingly discovered between the Great Pyramid, what's on the Giza Plateau, and what's in the southern part of the Jezero Crater on Mars. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, you kind of look around and someone says, who ordered this? Well, it's kind of been in the cards for a while, and we will discuss all those relevancies. So let's get right to it. Um, Starting with the news, for those of you who are new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures. So if you want to actually follow along to the links and the images we're going to be discussing on your various devices, all of which have keys and screens, you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, which is our website, our homepage, and that will take you to the top. There's a banner, the Great Pyramid at Giza, key to our Mars-Earth connection. Uh, with my guest tonight, D. Arthur Guzner, and um, you click on that, that takes you to the guest page, to uh, Daryl's guest page, and if you click on Fast Links right under that banner, uh, click on mine, um, that will take you to my section of Radio Pictures. Item number one, this is a story, a very thorough story from the BBC that I debated last night about posting, and I decided to go with my old alma mater, CBS. So tonight, we've got a rather remarkable poster, both in Chinese and in English, which lists the occupational project timeline for the uh, uh, Zurong uh, rover, which is named after the fire god of Mars. Uh, Ron Gess, uh, Gerbron has been doing some research in that direction, and he's going to regale us with the as is kind of typical for the Chinese, confusing mythologies around this fire god. As I said last night with John Brandenburg, given the really incredible evidence, isotopic evidence of maybe one, if not more than one, ancient nuclear wars on Mars. I mean, the isotopic signatures are pretty definitive. Isn't it interesting that the Chinese decided to call their rover after the fire god of Mars, and is that a um, Emily Dickinson between the lines uh, tell its slant reference to potentially that they know a lot more about the ancient history of Mars than uh, has been publicly acknowledged? We will see. One thing you do want to make note of, or we do want to make note of, is that it has now been like 48 hours and change since the uh, Chinese successfully landed uh, their spacecraft on Mars. How do we know this? 
because there's an awful lot of people over the world who have space programs with antennas that can listen to the booming signal from the Chinese broadcast systems and antennae on both the orbiter, which is still orbiting Mars, and acting as a relay for the uh, rover on the, on the ground, and from the rover itself. They can send signals directly back from the little high-gain antenna, the dish antenna, on the rover. We know they can do this because telemetry was received on Friday evening, um, uh, Saturday uh, morning, uh, uh, Beijing time, and we know that the solar panels unfolded, we know the antennas were raised, we know the cameras are up and running, they have a you know, mask arrangement, kind of like our own rovers. And so we know all that is going on. The thing we do not know is what the hell they're seeing. Because unlike their previous missions, like the Chang 3 and 4 missions to the moon, which are kind of the basic chassis of the Zerong rover, they have released zero data and information, particularly images from the rover. And it's been now almost two days. Now, if you read some of the private websites and blogs that follow the Chinese space program, which I um, uh, actually have tapped into, and I should probably put that link up there for everybody so you can all kind of eavesdrop. Uh, these these sources have good sources inside China that kind of like uh, sources of JPL that leak, you know, ex officio so that you get an inside look Nobody's leaking anything. So, as John Brandenburg and I discussed this afternoon, uh, when he called me briefly saying, what do we hear about the Chinese? <clears throat> I said, John, nothing, nothing, and it's been 48 hours. And it's really kind of mysterious. Now, the, um, the people that are kind of looking in to the Chinese operation are saying, well, this is because they only have one spacecraft act as a relay they have the same limited bandwidth problems that nasa has and nasa has like three or four orbiting spacecraft that it can relay signals from the rover to orbit to earth whereas the chinese only have one and uh, they actually change the orbit of the tn1 mission the questions of heaven orbiter which is still orbiting mars so that it's now in the correct orbit to fly over the uh, Utopia Planitia landing site. We know they've landed. We know where they've landed. We just don't know what they're seeing. And of course, the big, big question, which I discussed with John last night, when they finally send down their first picture, what will we see? Like with Perseverance, will the first color picture be a stunning reddish Mars with a gorgeous Bonstellian blue sky? Or will it be, as all the later images from Perseverance and the ones from Curiosity before that, and the ones from Opportunity before that, and the ones from Spirit before that, and the ones from Sojourner before that, and the um, uh, Sagan Station, will they be this kind of awful putrid butterscotch that NASA seems to think that Mars looks like? It's going to be a very interesting test as to the political independence of China. All the folder, all about geopolitics on Earth, notwithstanding, because if they come out with the real skies of Mars, which are blue, 
will know one thing, that they really are independent. If they come out with butterscotch skies, then we know that all the pretenses and all the posturing and all the nonsense about geopolitics between us and China now going on down here on Earth is all kabuki theater. Because upstairs, in the solar system, with human history, where it really matters, they are all functioning as one conspiratorial team dedicated to keeping most people on planet Earth in the dark. It's going to be an extraordinary moment when we finally get images from Mars from the Chinese from the first independent landing, other than the U.S., other than NASA, on the planet Mars ever in modern history, and what that first picture looks like when we see the horizon and the skies above it is going to tell us reams about the future to unfold. Which segues perfectly to item number two in my radio with pictures. Tonight, if you were um, had the good fortune to watch 60 Minutes, you saw a really remarkable, and I would say historical event. You saw a 10-15 minute segment of 60 Minutes, which was absolutely straight-laced journalism, balanced, had appropriate questions, had a lot of different, you know, first-time actors, people who were involved in the actual actualities of the events, and it left you with anticipation of an official document to be released by the U.S. Senate within the next two weeks. Now, we just happen to have the good fortune here at the other side of midnight to have a man in Washington, Steve Bassett, So without further ado, Steve Bassett, who is current head and founder of the Paradigm Research Institute. Steve, you watched uh, 60 Minutes. You've been trying to get this disclosure business on track and, you know, current for the last, what is it, 30, 40 years. What was your impression of 60 Minutes tonight and where we are in UFO history? Four years, Richard. I'm not that old, but uh, very good. Look, first, let me just say this. If I were NASA... I would be sweating bullets over every single photo the Chinese pull off of Mars, right? And let's leave it at that. Um, yeah, four years ago, almost to the day, Laura Logan on 60 Minutes interviewed space entrepreneur billionaire Robert Bigelow. And he told her to her face, there's extraterrestrials here. Not once, but twice. So we'll call that the first shoe drop. The second shoe dropped tonight. 60 minutes engage the issue again and based on what was on the show they could have done this show a year ago mm-hmm. two years ago why did they wait so long i'm speculating it was because the political situation had changed and so they made their move all right now we don't have time. We only have a short time here. We don't have time to re- to review the whole history of this. Uh, but they dealt with the ATIP program. They they brought on key people like Madeline and Elizondo and and um, uh, others, Marco Rubio. But what I will do here quickly is I'll try to provide your listeners uh, my take on some things on there which they may not have gotten. In other words, uh, interpretation they may not have gotten. There's a number of them. First of all. Marco Rubio's presence was very important. 
by going on the show, Marco Rubio basically absolutely fully was fully in. Oh, he he has married his career now to ufology. Yes, right. He he put the language in the intelligence bill, appropriations bill, calling for some information to come back. Totally safe thing to do. No risk. He wasn't running for president uh, for senate, um, and it wasn't. It was okay. He did that. Got a lot of pre- got him a lot of press, a lot of positive press. I'm sure he paid close attention. And the issue has continued to advance over the last six months. And so he goes on 60 Minutes, puts it right out there. Now he's locked in. That's extremely important. Point two, he mentions that the report that he requested we put together will be unclassified. There was a lot of talk mm. about is that's going to be secret this and secret that. No, it's unclassified. He said it, and that's going to be. Now, there may be some classified stuff, but obviously there's going to be plenty of unclassified stuff and clearly that's going to be reviewed all right he said that and he also said that report's coming next month which means it's going to be a lot harder for <laughs> that's only two people. weeks away well well yeah but i think it's i think the deadline in terms of the bill 180 days is around june 15 or so so we'll assume they're going to run it to the end of the deadline the point is is that it's going to be very hard for anybody over at oni or dod or cia or whatever to uh, come up with some reason, well, you know, uh, there's a there's a virus going around, and a couple of guys are out sick. We need three <laughs> more months. I don't think so. Even more importantly, by going public like that, he basically is the idea that they're going to come up with a big platter of nothing burgers like they have for the last seventy four years. Not going to happen. They're going to have to deliver some goods. I don't. I'm not saying it's going to be saucers and uh, you know uh, uh, maps to the underground bases, but they're going to deliver some serious stuff, and that's great. So that's coming. So that was very, very important to see have Rubio say those things. Um, in terms of Mellon, very important. Mellon, of course, also is now pretty. He's done interviews. Now Rogan is one thing. Sixty Minutes is another. All right. By doing these interviews, he's basically saying, I'm, I'm really involved in this. And if you listen to what he said, uh, it's confirming what I've been saying now for some time. Mellon and Elizondo and possibly Steve Justice have been negotiating hearings in front of the, the Senate and House committees very, very soon. One of the things he said was interesting is he surreptitiously uh, got the, um, the videos from the Pentagon. I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, Elizondo confirmed that he's the one that declassified them, and they were declassified. And so Mellon didn't have to surreptitiously get anything. And by the way, if you take something surreptitiously from the Pentagon, you know what happens? You, you wind up in Leavenworth. Five day. Well, first you get interviewed for five days, very intensely. Why he? What he's doing that is is very cool. Essentially, look, there's people inside the Pentagon that are supporting them. This is not an official Pentagon program. There are plenty of people in the military intelligence complex who would like to cut this thing off at the knees. They don't want this. They don't want disclosure to ever happen. In other words, they have their enemies. And there's a lot of diplomacy here. And so by saying I surreptitiously taking it, it takes the onus off. Uh, the Pentagon being labeled, why did you hand that to, to Mellon? How could you do that? What's going on here? So it takes them off the hook a little bit. There's a lot of that going on. But I don't think it was surreptitious. I think he got it, and he did what we're supposed to do and took it to the New York Times. Elizondo pretty much said the same things that he said before, but strongly, right, very strongly. They, as usual, 
walked all the witnesses, the pilots, the uh, they walked the issue right up to the line of <laughs> there's ETs here and stopped. That's well, hang on, on, hang on, hang on. Four years. Watching this, yeah. my reaction was, how can any of these people, serious people paid by the taxpayer, hold the idea that we have some secret technology that the Chinese have developed or the Iranians or the Russians yeah. or the U.S.? Because if anybody had this, they would have cleaned our clock 70 years ago and we'd all yeah. be living under some other regime. Yeah. I have the answer for that, Dick. It's pretty straightforward. The goal of the TTSA, now, of course, the three key people have left the TTSA, which was necessary, from the get-go, the intention of this inside group in the Pentagon that knew that the truth embargoes days had to end was to get the congressional hearings because congressional hearings end the embargo. It will allow the president to make the announcement once sufficient evidence has been presented. And so everything that's going on is to get those hearings. And so talking extraterrestrials specifically saying they're off-world, all of this is not conducive to convincing and allowing the committee chairs and members to sign on to, let's get those witnesses in, let's hear what they have to say. And that has been the case from day one. And so whether you're TTSA or witnesses, by and large, you just don't want to go there. I don't think there was anybody on that show that doesn't know there's ETs here. I don't <laughs> think there's a single member of the TTSA that doesn't know there's ETs here. There's so many people in government that know there's ETs here. It's, it's really kind of funny. But but saying it doesn't help. Now, in a sense, they're lying. But if, if even if you want to call it that, it's for a very important a, a purpose. No hearings, no disclosure. And so they're moving forward. They're making it increasingly harder for the press to stay out of it. And they're making it as easy as possible for the congressional people to hold the hearings, which is another reason why it's always cast in a national security framework. Now, some people say, oh, that means it's going to be a threatened thing. They're going to say the aliens are coming to get us and it's all a false flag. No, no, no. If you're going to get members of Congress or committee chairs to hold hearings, it ain't going to be about how we're going to build the ET embassy to greet them when they come. Right. It's got <laughs> to be about something that's politically safe. Well, it's legitimate national security matter. Obviously, they turn our nukes off. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you cast it in that light, makes it very safe and appropriate. And so it'll be national security. The witnesses will all be military people, maybe a few uh, people who worked in classified defense contractor programs. Why? Because military witnesses at a vest, they've already taken an oath when they signed up. Then they take another oath when they sit down at the, at the committee table. Plus, we know about them. There's no mysteries here. You know when they were served, where they served, what their record is, what medals they have. A civilian can turn up with a cockamamie story, and you have no idea who it is. So military witnesses are the absolute best. I know this because I had a bunch of them at the citizen hearing on disclosure I put on back in 2013. All right, And so military witnesses, committee, national security issues, and then – let the testimony begin. And once there's enough testimony on the table, could be five different committees over three weeks, then the president can come forward and say, I've been listening just like you have. I've been watching like you have. Wow, very convincing. I've talked to some key uh, congressional leaders. I've talked to my top advisors in the national uh, security area. And we have actually come to the consensus. This testimony confirms an extraterrestrial presence. And I'm confirming that to you today. And everybody are going, oh, that's very appropriate because everybody watched the testimony together. That's why there have been eight efforts or more to get hearings owing all the way back to Donald Trump. Well, Keogh, you know this is going to be – We can get them. 
You know the hearings, wherever they start, will be covered 24-7. It'll be the watched hearings at all time. I'm going to put the audience between 300 and million and seven, 800 million people. Hmm. Do we know? Which... Can you imagine being a committee chair uh, yeah. on a nonpartisan issue? Yep. Where you don't have to play the stupid games. Yep. yep. Uh, however, however, Rubio did say something interesting. He said, "There's some of my colleagues who are really interested." And then he mm-hmm. said, "There's some of my colleagues who are just laughing and giggling about this." So there mm-hmm. will be opposition. No, no. Just because you're laughing and giggling doesn't mean you're going to be opposition. And let's mm-hmm. be clear, as you know, Dick. If the committee chair wants a hearing, there will be a hearing, right? If a bunch of committee members say, we don't want to do it, he'll say, tough titty. Okay. okay? They our, call the hearings, right? You're our man in Washington. Yes. Which committee do you think is going to take the lead on this? It's obvious. Senate Intel. Okay. It's already taken the lead, and it's the appropriate one. And it's kind of cool because, you see, Warner got briefed along with Rubio, Right. But Rubio was the one that, that put it, the language in, but I imagine Warner signed off on it as well, and he stepped back. He let Rubio mm. have the stage, okay? Which was now, politically course, brilliant. Yeah, now Warner is the chair. And so when that, that first uh, hearing takes place, and it, it, it's the one that gets the ball rolling, uh, because there's no way he's going to do a one-day hearing on this, right? Oh, no, Those no, days no, are no, over. No, no. Rubio and Warner will be, will be chairing that together. It will be nonpartisan they will be getting the evidence working together and the american people are going to look and say oh god i've been waiting for this so long and everybody wins the democrats the republicans the committee chairs the dod it's military witnesses the military it's military witnesses and of course the president since he's handed the perfect way to finally confirm the ET presence without causing all kinds of chaos and not having to, to face a million questions. Well, why didn't you tell us sooner? And, and, and what did you know? And when did you know all that kind of crap? Hey, that's what's going to happen. I've been predicting mm-hmm. it now for months. The only thing that's real, it could have happened a little sooner. The only the thing that principally held it up, besides the odd insurrection, was uh, <laughs> the COVID situation. The yes. COVID thing, uh, you know, it kept going. But now the vaccination schedule is pretty predictable. And so very soon, the ability to bring witnesses in, hold full hearings, top full audience is there. And they're going to do it. They can't wait on this. As, as this kind of press emerges, the longer they hold it off, the more people are going to start going, what's the problem here? What's going on? Well, uh, the, just like the New York over. Times was the gateway yeah. to credibility in terms of mm-hmm. the print press, in terms of you know, everybody reads the Times before they do their stories on television. 60 minutes in the broadcast arena is equivalent. So the fact that this tonight was handled absolutely straight down the middle of the runway by 60 minutes, when do you think we might hear about hearings? A couple weeks after the... I think hearings can happen by... uh, will be definitely possible by July. Uh, Something could pop up at any time. And there's a little something else that's about to happen too. CBS now owns this issue. There are three networks. Well, there's four <laughs> networks, okay? Not the news networks. Forget, I'm talking about the networks, ABC, NBC. T- CBS owns this issue. Now, Fox News is, con- is, is, is in there, no question, but that's primarily simply because of one person, Tucker Carlson. But let's take the other two networks, the big ones, NBC and ABC. They do not even have a ticket to the party. They are out side looking in and i'm thinking the executives of those two major news operations are saying what in the hell is going on here 
this may be the biggest story in history and we've got nothing absolutely nothing and so i predict there's going to be an et coverage war starting mm -hmm. very soon between these three networks about who can get the most stuff out the door people feel pretty good about that richard watch for it fascinating okay i think we've covered the waterfront um obviously you'll keep us surprised if anything develops sooner than we are projecting i have a feeling july may be much later than your then it's going to really happen. Because remember, an awful lot of people, constituents, want something that's bipartisan, where we're not sniping at each yeah. other, and which means something to everybody as confirmation of an ET presence would inevitably mean. Yeah. Uh, July is, I said, when I think about the soonest it can happen. A, an announcement of some kind indicating they will happen could happen at any moment. That's what I'm thinking, the, the announcement, and then everything else follows from that. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. We will, we will call you again, or you can right. call us if something breaks. That was, uh, Steve, Happy to do so. That was Steve Bassett, who is uh, head and founder of the Paradigm Research Institute. And as I said, I've known Steve for... A long, 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 long time, and I'm actually rather gratified that this is moving in the direction it's moving because he has put in so many countless unpaid and unsanctioned and un, uh, you know, credited hours trying to push this effort of disclosure for literally decades. So um, it's 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 kind of nice to see it taking the appropriate turn. Uh, moving on in our our news coverage before we bring on our guest tonight. Item number three, um, if you want to read some of this stuff, uh, as I said, item number two is the 60 Minutes Overtime page. If you go there, you'll see tonight's report with additional footage that they did not have time to put on the air. <clears throat> and on the same page, just to the right of the UFO Pentagon story, is the NASA Perseverance story from CBS's perspective. And I thought we would... Uh, point you to the page as opposed to the specific stories because there are a couple of items on that page that are worth your attention. Item number three, um, the Pentagon uh, is confirming through this UFO footage um, the, the objects that apparently are defying the current laws of physics. And there's a bit of a backstory as to some footage uh, that was provided by one UFO researcher which did not make it into tonight's uh, uh, 60 Minutes uh, interviews. And the story there is kind of interesting. In other words, are they saving more for future editions of 60 Minutes on this subject? If I was producing 60 Minutes, that's what I would do, not put everything in your one basket. Item number four. Uh, there's a very interesting story, rather in-depth story, in the uh, New Yorker, um, which kind of tracks all the way back to the beginnings uh, of, of this uh, uh, set of developments from uh, some other insiders' perspectives, including uh, talking, uh, you know, about people that have been involved for many, many years. In addition to uh, Steve Bassett, we have Stephen Greer, who uh, uh, took to the lectern in 2001 at the National Press Club. And, uh, you know, began the kind of public <clears throat> um, discussion after decades of this, uh, you know, entire uh, controversy, which has only gotten worse over the years. And you might want to read that backstory because it gives you 
some more uh, information to kind of fill in uh, the blanks. Well, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour, so I'm going to hold off in introducing my uh, my guests until we come back after the break. Um, I would like to um, uh, presage uh, what we're going to talk about tonight in that our guest just fortuitously happens to have a very interesting background himself in national security. And so one of the first things uh, I'm going to ask him is what he thinks of these developments and uh, who knows where uh, that will take us. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. One of the ways that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception at a, on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet. Because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Anetta, and Kinthea. 
Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide. And welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, May 16th, 2021. My guest this morning is uh, D. Arthur Guzner. The D stands for Daryl, so I'm going to call him Daryl. He never goes in public by Arthur. But he publishes under D. Arthur Guzner, so you're going to want to go to the other side of midnight and the guest page and scroll down to his um, uh, bio. Actually, under the banner, you can also just click on bios and... He's the first one on the runway, so click on that. Right next to um, his picture there with a gorgeous little dog who unfortunately is no longer with us, um, there's a website, Galaxy Quest Books, and uh, Daryl has written five books that kind of encompass some of the things we're going to be talking tonight. So without further ado, let me uh, give him an appropriate intro. He, He was determined to serve his country at the age of 16, and so back then, which was some time ago, he borrowed his brother's draft card and joined the U.S. Army. After three years of honorable service, he then sought an education at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, where he earned degrees in chemistry and physics. Darrell's subsequent 20-year career was as a physicist for the United States Navy, where he specialized in marine warfare. At the end of the Cold War, he turned his attention to marine research and exploration, where he is focused on the search for and recovery of historical shipwrecks. His experience as submarine warfare background influenced his books Guardian Force, Earth Guardian, Guardian Probe, Guardian Strike, and Guardian Thunder. Do you detect a theme in that? Anyway, um, D. Arthur Guzner and his belated yellow Labrador, Limo, Currently, he lives in Cambria on the central coast of California. And, Daryl, welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, Richard. I am truly honored to be here tonight, and particularly on this night, which is a momentous night based upon what you have just revealed. And I've been sitting here listening to the report of what has come out with regards to the release of information on UFOs. And I'm delighted. It's long overdue. And I really mean that. Uh, I've only seen fundamentally one UFO in my life, but I have followed the UFO phenomenon most of my life. And it's just wonderful to see the truth finally coming out. Well, without telling any tales out of school, in terms of your national security background, there's a whole class of this phenomenology called USOs. 
unidentified submerged objects. Have you either seen one or have you encountered individuals in your wide travels and, you know, among colleagues and people in the armed forces and at various levels of the Department of Defense, have you ever heard or talked to people about unidentified submerged objects? I have come across stories uh, in my lifetime, which were observations of ships that dove into the sea and then came back up and out of the sea. And that was considered to be something you don't talk about. Uh, so we don't and didn't talk about it. And um, I don't know that it's, the, any of that data has been released yet, but it recently has been said that some of the F-18 pilots observed this phenomenon of ships diving into the sea and coming back out of it. Historically speaking, it's not a new thing. Uh, if you recall the book of the Damned by Charles Fort, mm. uh, he just, he described a circular a wheel within a wheel, much like Ezekiel did, and it was seen both in the air and one of the reports in his book, uh, Book of the Damned, Charles Fort relayed a story of how a sea captain reported watching this thing, that circular thing with radiant light, cross beneath his ship as well as overhead. And the descriptions provided by uh, Fort in his report were really wonderful because it gave in the rotation, the angular rotation of the wheel within the wheel. And it was a very good uh, good description. I pondered that for quite some time. There was another report in his book that described exactly the same ship that was seen on the east coast of the United States hundreds of years after Ezekiel saw it, of course, a thousand years or so. And it was seen off the east coast to hover for quite a while. And then it, poof, with a flash of light, disappeared as if it had gone between time. Um, and I think time has a whole lot to do with what's happening here. It's an area that we know little about, and at least I know little about. Uh, it's an incredible story. It's a story which catches us up in our ancient histories. Uh, it catches us up in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, as I said. It catches us up in stories like the Apostle Paul stated that angels are walking among us. So the E.T. could be among us. Uh, how are you translate this material? I don't know. But the pyramid that we I talked about is certainly an anomaly. And it's a spectacular, I think. Does that answer your question? Oh, more than, but at least so many other questions. For instance, my personal uh, you know, theory, hypothesis, as to the reason for both the extensive cover-up of the UFO phenomenon for, as Steve said, you know, over 74 years, and the equally bizarre and very anti-scientific cover-up of the reality of extraterrestrial ruins all over the solar system with specific, you know, focus on what's waiting on Mars, I think traces back to a common theme. And appropriately enough, here you are tonight to discuss the theme, which is somehow these two phenomena which are connected at some point in this model, ultimately intersect with the history, the genesis, and whatever happened in our ancient and perhaps not so ancient human past. And I think that is the primary reason 
why all of these subjects have been taboo for literally decade after decade, because it's not aliens, it's not an other out there that we're going to encounter when this unfolds. It's in fact a reflection of who we are, the trail we got from there to where we are tonight, the suppressed history, and it's got to be one hell of a story of how we wound up on this little blue-green planet thinking that we're all alone when in fact it's just the opposite and it's somehow this entanglement of these phenomenon with the identity of Homo sapiens sapiens, which I think is the prime driver for the extraordinary energies and efforts expended in these cover-ups. What do you think? I agree. Uh, I do agree. There has been a reason for it. And as for the cover-up, it's been solid, absolutely solid. As you recall, in June of 1947, we had the sightings of a group of UFOs over Mount Rainier. It was only a matter of a week or two after that sighting in June that on July the 3rd, there was a report of a crashed UFO near a SAC base in New Mexico and that the Air Force at that time put out a open message that we had captured a UFO. Uh, that was withdrawn, as was the newspaper article uh, in the newspaper that had come out just before that. And I think that changed the world. I really do. And this is my opinion. I can't tell you because I wasn't in the halls of Congress. <laughs> uh, and I don't know what happened in the halls of Congress. But I, could, I, I choose my data carefully. And if you take July the 3rd of 1947 and then spin forward and look how many weeks it took to do the finalization and ratification of the 1947 National Defense Act, which reorganized our military completely, created the United States Air Force, gave foundation to the first Secretary of Defense, uh, and then just restructured everything to what? Not a Department of War, but a Department of Defense. Now, I don't have the answers as to what happened in that group. I don't know. But I know one thing. We had just finished World War II. We just dropped two nukes, and we'd seen the effect of those two nukes. I also know the fact that when they crawled across the wreckage of that UFO, and was there a UFO? All these decades later, they say, no, 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 you, Roswell is a joke. Is it? There's a book out there, and I didn't write it. But those who did, did so with data, and that's called Witness to Roswell. It's a wonderful book, and I don't believe anybody with an open mind could read that book and not walk away saying there was a UFO at Roswell. And who wrote, and, and who wrote Witness to Roswell? Oh, there are four or five authors, ah. and one of them was an astronaut. So my point being, I, I'm sorry, I can't give you that off the top of my head. Well, this is where we but introduce my, Brian, who is, yes. <clears throat> who is Daryl's AI. Actually, he's his nephew. <laughs> but uh, Daryl is blind. So what yes. the research he has done and what he's going to be just discussing tonight should be viewed in that light that it's uh, overcoming, you know, some handicaps that ordinary researchers do not have to overcome. But, Brian, you can, in your copious spare time there, look up who wrote Witness to Roswell because I'd like to give people full background so they can go and find this book uh, themselves if uh, you think it's perhaps the best chronology of 
what happened at Roswell. I absolutely endorse it. It's as a marvelous book, as far as detailed. I mean, you, I don't believe you can read the evidence that those people provide in that book and walk away saying, no, it didn't happen. This is a fraud. I don't think that's possible, not to an open-minded uh, analytical person. Brian? Yes. Let me, let me introduce my nephew. Brian Gusner, and it's Gusner. Brian is my nephew. He's the eldest uh, son of my beloved sister who is no longer with us. And he's been kind enough over the last year and a half or so to help me. And I've been very grateful for that help. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? We're doing great. Okay, if you if you can if you can look that up and then at an appropriate time interject uh, who the authors were and I presume it's available on Amazon and other yes, good bookstores, etc., etc. Uh, Daryl, let's let's swing into what we're going to talk about tonight because I have been and I can't remember when always fascinated by this thing, this enigma by the Nile, the Great Pyramid, and I've read Piazzi Smith and I've read Tompkins and I've read. Probably if I put all the books I've read on the Great Pyramid, they would stretch almost to the moon. Uh, I, I think you're kind of similar. How did you wind up going from the U.S. Navy, operations, national security work, et cetera, et cetera, you know, service and submarines, to marine archaeology, to the Great Pyramid? There must be a <laughs> hell of a story there. And we have time. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's, it sort of came as a love of the ocean. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I found myself on the USS Sturgis, which is a United States Army troop ship, crossing the Atlantic for a two and a half year stint in uh, Europe. And it was a hurricane. And so for three days and three nights, I was in that hurricane. And like, like a 17-year-old kid that has any brains, <laughs> I found an access way to climb up through the, the you know, the passageways and up through the, the chutes and get up on deck, oh, which was God. absolutely violating every rule in the book. Yes. And I found myself on a little catwalk just below the bridge, and there was a little rail that I could put my feet against and brace my back against the bulkhead and hold onto the handrail. And I rode that ship down the face of a huge cliff down across the valley below, then up the face, the rising face of the next oncoming wave, which is taller than the ship, and watch the bow of the ship plow into that wave, and then we broke through. Well, when we plowed through that wave, tons and tons of seawater crashed upon the foredeck, came aft, hit the bulkhead, and went left and right. And I sat there, I sat there for maybe two or three waves, and suddenly even my 17-year-old brain said, <laughs> this is not very smart. <laughs> and at that point, I opened the hatch and went back down and dogged it behind me. I never told anybody that story until tonight, I guess, except for a couple of family members. But sitting there, at, at guess my back against that bulkhead at 17, I had the impression of, a, of an enraged ocean, winds at a, you know, nearly 100 miles an hour, sleet, rain, and a ship literally faced into those oncoming waves, and we were there for three and a half days riding that thing. And it was, it was a momentous time in my life. I've never forgotten it, and I've always loved the Navy, and, and I've always have loved the, the Army, too, for that matter. They, they were very good to me. Uh, and also the, the fact that we, um, well, anyway, just I do. And so that is what brought me through. Uh, when I graduated from Poly, um, 
my, like I say, you know what, I studied. And I was, I only took one job interview. And I was offered a job to work with Admiral Rickover. And I turned it down. Oh, my God. And the, the man says, why? He says, I can't tell you, Daryl. He says, you're making a terrible mistake to go where you're going. It's a production station. You don't belong in a production station. And I said, yeah, but it's the only underwater tracking range in the world. And I want to go there to work with APL University of Washington. And he thought I was crazy, but I went up to interview with him, and, and he offered me the job, and it was a beautiful job. And I really brilliant GS rating they were offering me. And I thanked him very much for, the, for, the, for that offer. But I did decline it, and I did go to work at that no, no one ever heard of production station, and it changed my life, literally changed my life. And uh, I had the opportunity to work with brilliant officers, such as Captain Null, who was the chief of staff, submarine forces specific, and he directly directed me to do some work for him personally, and I found forces specific. And Captain Null was just an incredible officer. And so that started it. And that's how I got myself into testing with submarines. And that's how I ended up developing the very first successful, totally integrated submarine fire control system that had ever been developed. And it, it changed the Navy in, in ways I don't, I don't want to discuss. But, mm. but the point was it was challenging for a young, young engineer and I spent 20 years working, and I did have a chance to work with the Canadians, the Australians, and also the United States Navy for all those years. And I love my work. I really did. I love the ocean. I love my work with the government. But at a certain point, my eyesight was going, and I knew that. So I retired. I went to my farm. I had a 200-acre farm in upstate New York, and I settled into private study. And that's where I got involved with maritime studies and other studies, historical in nature. And do you after, know, let me interrupt, do you know Clive Cussler? I'm aware of the name, but no, I've never met him. Many years ago, when he was involved, I'm trying to remember now what the research was. Um, you know, he writes all these incredibly interesting, you know, daring do, uh, cutting edge exploration slash, you know, uh, skullduggery novels about marine research and oceanography right. and all that. For those that in the audience, there may be one or two who don't know who Clive Custler is. He was involved in something peripheral to the discovery of a set of ancient ruins a half a mile down off the west coast of Cuba. I remember that. And there was a, a, a Canadian researcher and her husband who had a contract with Castro's government to basically catalog, I think, shipwrecks, Spanish shipwrecks uh, around the periphery of Cuba uh, for whatever reason, safety or marking them in case treasure hunters tried to, you know, take the stuff or Cuba wouldn't get a bonus or something like that. And it was in the process of this research that they tripped over accidentally with an ROV uh, 2,500 feet down off the west coast of Cuba, this set of amazing geometric ruins on the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. And the, the problems in terms of tectonics, of how something could have been on the surface, and then is 2,500 feet down, that's one of the myths. There are plazas, there are streets. 
it looks like an entire sunken, extraordinary E.T. base, if you can imagine, you know, sci-fi projecting with pyramids and, you know, swooping uh, architecture and all that buried, you know, half a mile beneath the ocean. Well, Robin, my uh, significant other who's no longer with us, got the bright idea one day, considering that we both were devotees of Kessler's work, to call him up and try to get him on the case because um, the uh, researchers had tried to make a deal with the National Geographic and things were going along swimmingly, pun intended, and then suddenly all communication was cut off. And I had a personal experience with the Geographic and the Mars uh, research I've been doing in a very similar vein. So I was I was prepared this was going to happen because, again, like there are cover-ups of ancient extraterrestrials, ancient archaeology, both here and elsewhere in the solar system, there seems to be a cover-up of things that are underwater that we're not supposed to know about. So Robin was actually, she was very good at this, she was able to get Clive Cussler's home phone number, his cell phone, (laughs) and we called him out of the blue. And I have never, I mean, I have a reasonable background, you know, Cronkite, CBS, NASA, etc., I have never been so cut off at the knees by an ostensible just author as we were in trying to talk to Clive Cussler about these ruins off Cuba. And the conversation went fine until we introduced what we wanted him to look into, and it was like he had been struck by lightning. He literally abruptly just terminated the call and we could never get hold of him again, indicating to me that not only does the cover-up extend to outer space, it extends to the deep ocean. Have you looked at pursuing, given your, you know, submarine background, have you looked at pursuing with maybe people at Woods Hole or people at uh, Scripps or whatever, what's down there waiting off Cuba to be reborn? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I have come across similar stories. Uh, there's a story that was told among the sports divers that I met of such a pyramid off of another island in the Caribbean, of which I frequented. And uh, I never went to it myself, but I talked to a number of people who had dove on it. And they tended to be very closed mouth about it. Um, but I do believe that it was there. Um work I did was basically um, on the east coast of Florida and also in the Dominican Republic. And uh, I was fundamentally looking for, when you look for something like that, you're out doing surveys using magnetometers and bottom scanning sonars and things of this nature. Mm -hmm. And you have a goal, a target you're looking for, but you're also looking for anything else that might come up. And I can say truthfully that we never came across the pyramid. (laughs) I'm trying to remember this couple's name because I actually talked to both of them and they dropped off the radar. It's like somebody had warned them, do not get involved in this. It's a taboo subject and they had no resources to fight, you know, governments or whoever is in in charge of this cover-up. Let me, going back to something we said earlier and then I want to return to the archaeology, do you have the feeling from the people you talk to in the defense establishment 
that once this process is a little further along, once there are congressional hearings, it's going to be the literal breaking of the dam and an extraordinary fusillade of stories and people and witnesses and and uh, you know tales of extraordinary encounters are going to come gushing forth because everybody's been kind of waiting for this disclosure moment to finally happen? I can't say that I have a feeling towards what the government will do about anything, to be honest with you. Now, I was not uh, in government. I'm, I'm, I'm talking the rank and file, the people in the services who have been muzzled for decade after decade of things they've encountered and witnessed and seen. In, in truth, it was something that if you discussed, you did, did not discuss in specificity. You just didn't. It, it was, number one, tarnish your career. Uh, you were thought to be, quote, a nut, close quote. But the point was is some things did happen, and you just went on your way. But at times, if you were, shall we say, by the swimming pool between operations, we, you would discuss something like that. But not officially. Hmm. Okay, well, um, I uh, my dad was in the Navy. I was not. But I have this feeling that there is such a pent-up, shall we say, interest in this subject that uh, all hell's going to break loose when the official chains of secrecy are released. But that could be just me. And so we will no, see. No, sir. I'll tell you what. Uh, <laughs> hold, hold it there. We're, we're at the it top. It is you. <laughs> and it is everybody else, too. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is uh, Daryl Arthur Gusson. He is a former naval, U.S. naval uh, specialist, um, underwater uh, warfare. Um, I believe nuclear weapons kind of come into this at some point, uh, apropos our discussion with uh, John Brandenburg last night. And we'll get back to all of that and, of course, his uh, expertise in archaeology, ancient archaeology, and we will get to the Great Pyramid. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because 
Without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.